It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. One of us might bend over and the seam in the butt would just rip out. One of us would mistakenly sit on the acid ground, although we always brought a plastic tarp that we kept outside of the smoke zone. When you think of people who take risks, scientists are rarely the ones who immediately come to mind, yet taking risks in pursuit of knowledge is actually quite prevalent in history. Today we take that approach from hot to cold, talking about risky science with two scientists who venture into extreme environments to further our understanding of the world around us. Dr. Fraser Goff made a career out of traveling all over the planet to study volcanoes, including descending into active calderas to sample extremely high temperature poisonous gases. At the other end of the temperature range, Dr. Ralph Harvey led expeditions searching for meteorites in Antarctica, which meant surviving in the desolate interior continent amid fierce freezing winds and harsh conditions. I'm former astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible, whether it's intense heat or bitter cold. We're really grateful to Duncan for sponsoring this episode of The Adrenaline Zone, and they'll be back with us in our second season. Remember, Duncan's made for anyone who's out there taking risk and pushing their boundaries every day no matter what kind of risk that might be. Whether you're embarking on or wrapping up your adventure or somewhere in between, you'll know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And remember, if you order ahead, it'll be ready when you get there. We begin today with Fraser Goff and managing the risk involved in hiking into active volcanoes. And why on earth would anyone want to do that anyway? Fraser, the first question that I have to ask is why? With all of the hot lava, superheated mud, and noxious gases, why would anyone want to get up close and personal to study a volcano? And what drives a person into an active volcano? What are you trying to learn and why is it important? Starting around 1985, I began a series of projects to look at the composition of the gases coming out of active volcanoes for a number of reasons. Possibly one could use this data to do eruption forecasting. And I also began to use this data, this expertise to help people design equipment to do remote sensing of the gases coming out of volcanoes. Again, possibly for hazards or possibly for other kinds of studies. I felt feel pretty lucky. I mean, I really enjoyed the work and they paid me to do it. So off I went. So how does one go about training and preparing for working in an active caldera or in the midst of a geothermal system? I can't imagine there was a predefined system set up to go and do this. Well, there certainly wasn't in the early days. I mean, you went with people who had been, say, to boiling hot springs and acid places, acidic places, to kind of learn the ropes. But through time, we've begun to develop some protocols for safety and for how to conduct our business safely. And so in my case, I always insisted that we work as a team, never less than three people, sometimes five. We would always had an in-country colleague because a lot of the places that I worked at were overseas, particularly in Latin America. And I don't know, we started to develop kind of protocols for what if something happens, this kind of an event or that kind of event, how would we 
meet or rendezvous or, or and so forth. We began to take gas mask training because these acidic gases are really noxious. You can't breathe in there if you don't have a gas mask. So we got gas mask training, of course. Working for Los Alamos, I got mandatory CPR and first aid training every year. As time progressed, the management of my division insisted that I start writing safety plans. So Fraser, as that safety plan grew over time, I would imagine that some of the growth could be attributed to some close calls you might have had. Would that be the case? Yeah, I had one close call in uh, Colombia, uh, a Galeras volcano. That was in 1993, as I recall. There was an explosion there during a workshop that was being conducted to study what was called decade volcanoes. And the volcano in Colombia, Galeras, had just started erupting and it dominated the landscape above a town called Pasto. And so we were there for this workshop. We were going to collect samples in the volcano in a couple of days after the beginning of the workshop. A couple of my guys went on a field trip actually into the volcano, kind of to scope it out although I, I did not go in there. And uh, the volcano had a, a minor explosion, but for a volcano, a minor explosion was enough to kill, I guess, nine scientists and five tourists. You mentioned earlier when we were talking to you that the only risks there are not just in the volcano, right? There are other risks associated with traveling to faraway places uh, in the world to explore these things. And you mentioned to us that you'd hired bandits in Guatemala once to keep you safe? I don't know if you've been to Guatemala City, but to the south of Guatemala City, there's quite a large stratovolcano called Pacaya. And I knew that it was degassing. It was a prime candidate for the kind of work I did. So, But it had a history of, of tourists going up to the volcano and then being robbed by bandits. So I told my colleague, in-country colleague, I said, hey, we can't afford to be robbed or raped even. So we need to go up there and negotiate with these guys. And so he, the two of us went up there and we started talking around in the little village there on the flank. And eventually we had a rendezvous with the bandit family. And I ended up hiring two of the bandits for, gosh, I don't know, not very much money, plus a carton of cigarettes each. And so that was the deal. So as you went to these different places all over the world and you were revising your safety plan from year to year, did you kind of keep a consistent set of contingencies that you were planning? For example, in the Galeras situation, clearly an emergency evacuation would have been maybe helpful, but maybe not. Every place is different. Every, I like to say volcanoes are like people. They're a little bit the same and a little bit different. So, for example, we did a couple of volcanoes in the Galapagos there's no radio signals out there. It's a real desolate, end-of-the-earth kind of place. So no radios there. Again, we had a team, and we tried to practice safety as best as we could. So each one was different, and the safety plan that we developed would be slightly different for each one. Did you have a consistent set of safety gear that you took on every trip as just a minimum that you guys worked up from? Yes, we did. I mean, we wore padded coveralls like uh, you might wear in a, a garage during the wintertime to provide a little bit of what insulation. We did not wear a reflective aluminum safety gear. We always had a gas mask. We had the training for that. Of course, we had our sampling equipment, which was pretty standard. We didn't modify that too much. Uh, it was all designed so that it could withstand the acid gases 
So for example, we never carried a pH meter because we found out right away that within an hour, it would be fried from the acidic gases. The only thing we did use that was electronic was a electronic uh, thermocouple to measure temperature. I wrapped it with plastic and tape and made sure the connections were protected. So we had to have that because we had to have temperature information. But everything else was designed to be operated manually. So for example, we would stuff these silica glass tubes about one inch in diameter into the throats of these hopefully high pressure, high temperature fumaroles. And we had a system of equipment that would condense the vapors. And then we had configured ways to get the samples of the condensate and the gases. So Fraser, I remember peeking over the rim of the Mauna Loa volcano in Hawaii and thinking, no, I'm not going in there. So I'm visualizing you with all of your gear on. Can you give us a sense for what it feels like to step into a you know particularly active volcanic area for the first time? You know, the sights, uh, the sounds, the smell. I think the first one I did was St. Helens. And although it it was in 1985. The dome inside the crater was still growing. So, yeah, we landed on top of the dome in a helicopter. And when you got out of the chopper and got your equipment away from the blades and then got your crew collected, the first thing you noticed was the sound of the dome growing. It sounded like a, like a D9 cat without the sound of the diesel, with all, just all the broken rock and everything as it the dome was expanding. And then the crater walls of St. Helens are pretty steep. So you'd get constant landsliding and rock falls. So lots of noise, lots of, you know, there's no trails in there. So you're walking often on jumbled terrain. Of course, the gases are everywhere, but they're focused at certain funeral sites. So as you approach those, you'd be thinking about maybe falling into some cavernous spot or worrying about getting blasted with high temperature gas if the wind changed. So yeah, all that's going through your head as you slowly approach the sites where you're going to be sampling. You're describing to me Dante's Inferno, I think. Uh, it was the dominant smell, sort of <laughs> sulfurous. Uh, yes. that's Although the main gases almost invariably are water vapor, it turns out, which of course at those temperatures is superheated steam. There's a lot of sulfur gases. So sulfur dioxide, which uh, smells like burning matches, and hydrogen sulfide, which smells like rotten eggs. So that's why we have the gas mask in particular, is to filter out those acidic gases. Also hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, they're also components of these gases. So yeah, it does look like Dante's Inferno. I've got quite a few photographs of me in these various places. and. Well, it's a wasteland of steep crater walls, acidic mud pools, acid fumaroles, colorful. I mean, a lot of alteration of the rocks, so a lot of reds and oranges and yellows and blacks. No, nothing's growing in there. There's no trees. There's no plants. There's no grass. Sounds like a nasty environment with all those really, really caustic uh, chemicals. But how did you know the footing that you were on was solid and you weren't over a crust that was going to break through? So one member always carried an aluminum pole that we would use maybe with a clamp on the end to clamp an instrument or a sampling bottle. And that 
the butt end of that pole we would often use to uh, pound the ground in front of us to see how it sounded, to see if it felt safe. So, you know, we had different ways of doing that. How much time did you actually usually spend inside uh, that hot spot? One of these places? Oh, eight hours, if we could, depending on how much hiking we had to do up front. So you had eight hours of super focused, highly concentrated work that was probably exhausting by the time you crawled out at the end of the day. I have a lot of colleagues who have had physical accidents, generally around acid hot springs where the ground becomes so rotten and they're not very careful and maybe they bust through, you know, and they get steam burns on their feet and uh, ankles and legs through their clothing. But I've, you know, for some reason, I've never had an accident like that. I don't know. Just lucky, I guess. So Fraser, I got to ask you one last question. (laughs) And that is, you've been all over the world. You visited tons of volcanoes. Uh, Do you have a favorite? Uh, Everybody asks me that. If so, so, why is it your favorite? (laughs) My favorite volcano. Oh, I loved them all. I mean, you know, White Island. Boy, that's quite a place. That's off of New Zealand, right? White Island is off of New Zealand? Yeah, that one exploded about, what, two years ago with a bunch of tourists in it off a boat. People were not trained. They were not given any kind of training. Uh, They were just wearing shorts. Oh, the Kiwis can be quite cavalier. I forgot to mention that. They're all into wearing shorts, you know, when it's snowing and stuff. Yeah, that I think about 20 tourists were killed there. But, you know, I had sampled it a few years earlier. No problems. We even helicoptered into it. I love them all. They're all different. They're all kind of a challenge. Yeah, when we come back, we'll switch gears and temperatures and explore with Dr. Ralph Harvey what it takes to camp in one of the coldest places on Earth and why the risk is worth it. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons. Or, you know, the rest of us 9 to 5 hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow-steeped Duncan cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Duncan cold brew. I often jokingly say that my real job is to move 20,000 pounds of crap and eight people with individual personalities halfway across the world and then back again. Dr. Ralph Harvey is the co-principal investigator for the Antarctic Search for Meteorites program. He's a professor in the Department of Geological Sciences at the Case Western Reserve University, specializing in, get this, the geochemistry of planetary materials with an emphasis on Mars. For those interested in Mars geology, the best place to go on Earth is Antarctica, where because of a combination of the landscape, weather patterns, and geography, it's one of the best places on Earth to hunt for meteorites. It's a demanding, unforgiving environment But for scientists like Dr. Harvey, the risks are worth it. Ralph, let's start off in just talking about why Antarctica? Why is it the best place to go there? And what is so important about that location? Well, sure. And thanks for having me. There's nothing really special about Antarctica in terms of meteorites falling there preferentially. In fact, 
they probably fall 10 or 15% more often around the equator. But at a first order, you know, if you want to find things falling from space, lay out a big white sheet. And Antarctica is a big white sheet about 3,500 miles across. So that certainly plays a role in it. But there's something else going on as well, which is that big white sheet collects the meteorites that fall on it, kind of like raisins sprinkled in a pudding. And as that more snow falls over time and the ice sheet itself sags under its own weight and starts flowing out toward the coast, it brings its cargo of little meteorites sprinkled through it along for the ride. We, in our program, look for areas where that flowing ice with its cargo of meteorites is stalled for, usually for geographical reasons. And in those places, if we're lucky, ice removal mechanisms, nice natural things like a a cold, dry wind coming off the East Antarctic Plateau will remove some of the ice and snow. So there are areas, probably a few hundred of them all around the continent, where the meteorites just naturally start to pile up because of the flow of the glaciers and the loss of the ice when the glaciers flow into the equivalent of a cul-de-sac. And our job is to find those spots and then get our boots down on the ice and start sniffing around and hoping that the rocks we find are mostly from outer space. Well, Ralph, you've been doing this for a few semesters. How many useful meteorite samples have you found over your career and what happens to them? Well, I can't speak for myself because honestly, I I haven't kept count, but I've been the PI on the program since the mid nineties and the program itself has existed since the mid seventies. The first field season was started in late 1976. As of right now, the U.S. Antarctic program has found a little over 23,000 meteorites. And all of them are now in the hands of curators uh, or scientists doing research on them. Our searching is is systematic. Often we form a line of six or eight people abreast of each other and, and transect the ice in as regular of a pattern as we can with overlapping transects. So, Ralph, I'm trying to draw the line between meteorites in Antarctica and studying the geochemistry of a place like Mars. How do you know that the meteorites you're picking up in Antarctica are actually from Mars? How on earth did they get here? And what do you do with those things? Our program was the one where the meteorites from Mars were first identified as having come from that planet. That is actually uh, a bit of somewhat sophisticated geochemistry. These rocks were launched off Mars by relatively large impacts. And we don't know all the details. We've never seen it happen, but we know theoretically it can happen. And and it's the equivalent of throwing one rock at another at an oblique angle and sending a chip flying. In this case, when the rock that's thrown is traveling at 20 kilometers a second and hits the surface of the Mars, you're going to have a few chips go so fast and at the right angle to, to leave Mars orbit. And eventually the Earth runs into it just coincidentally. There are now about 100 Mars meteorites that have been recognized from all over the world, and about a quarter of those are from Antarctic collections. But they're especially valuable because scientists have access to them. They've been kept in a natural deep freeze since they were found. 
And that allows people to do some very exploratory chemistry. And that's what led to the identification of their parent planet as having been Mars. One of these rocks and some great geochemists at a few different universities back in the early 80s looked at the melted portion of this rock and thought they would sniff around in it to see if it had trapped any gases that might reveal when it was knocked off its parent or what that parent was. Inside of a gun, when they did that, they found that the trapped gases in the melted portion of this rock matched up one for one with the gases of the Martian atmosphere as sniffed out by the Viking landers. So there's no way this could be a coincidence. It's too weird. I would imagine that planning a six-week trip to such an isolated and dangerous area is not really a simple task. Can you give us a sense for the preparations that you and your team would go through in order to get ready for an expedition down there? No, you bet. In fact, I often jokingly say that my real job is to move 20,000 pounds of crap and eight people with individual personalities halfway across the world and then back again. Our team is usually six to eight people, about half of which will be veterans of our program or leadership people. And they're selected from the scientific community, mostly people that will get some kind of direct benefit out of understanding how Antarctic meteorites are recovered and what their natural environment is like. Can be planned out many, many years in advance. We're funded by NASA with support from the U.S. Antarctic program. In the end, have a pile of 16,000 or 20,000 pounds of accoutrement, to be French about it, that we then transport out literally into the middle of nowhere on the edges of the East Antarctic ice sheet. These sites where the meteorites are, are along the edges, the, the high altitude edge of the ice sheet along the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. So they're often difficult places to land. That's why it becomes almost a staging operation all the way. So you're relying on the, the sounds like the experts in the Antarctic program to help you with the logistics, but there's still a lot involved, I think, in the training, and that has to be fairly demanding because you have to understand both the proper scientific methodology to document the meteorites and do that appropriate labeling and, and work, but also basic survival skills and safety skills for living in what is basically a desolate, unforgiving remote, harsh environment. So how do you go about getting a team ready to do both that, the science and the survival aspect? Well, first off, the brochure we give them never says desolate and unforgiving. No, <laughs> I'm joking there. Uh, people know what they're getting into. And we do have a lot of training that goes on. But the first and foremost, most important test is, do you really want to go? We've got a rather unique application form for our volunteers. And we are one of the rare Antarctic programs that will take volunteers. Our highest priority, of course, is scientists working on Antarctic meteorites. But we simply ask people to write us a letter on paper. No emails, no tweets, no phone calls. Write it down in paper. Tell us that you want to go and tell us why you'd be a good choice. We have a boot camp that we hold for new and old field party members alike about six to eight weeks before we go to the field where we talk about all these things and show off the equipment that we'll be using. 
and make sure people are not seeing it or thinking these thoughts for the first time. It's amazing how different facing frostbite is if you've actually thought about it a little bit ahead of time. It's amazing that when you think about just how cold your feet might get, that you've thought about it and you've seen the proper boots and et cetera. Of course, we do that training all over again. When we go into the field, we do so through the U.S. Antarctic Program's major logistical hub, which is McMurdo Station on Ross Island in Antarctica. And while we're there, we train with snowmobiles, we train with survival techniques, we make sure everybody understands the threat of the weather and the threat of crevasses, big cracks in the ice sheet that we desperately do not want to fall into. That said, the risks we face are almost all either self-imposed, like rolling a snowmobile over on someone's leg, or due to the environment, the weather, the cold, the wind, the isolation. I'm in awe of people who face challenges like a rowdy bar on a Saturday night or uh, a tribe of indigenous people deep in the Amazon that don't speak your language and don't really like you. I don't ever want to do field work where I have to shake poisonous spiders out of my boots in the morning. And uh, I can say after many, many field seasons, crevasses don't sneak up on you. Crevasses are fallen into when you make a mistake yourself. So Ralph, take us out on the Antarctic ice sheet. I'm visualizing camping for weeks in you know, fierce cold, howling winds, roaming around on sleds during the day, uh, finding meteorites on uh, very snow-covered terrain, sudden whiteouts, changes in weather conditions, and you mentioned crevasses. C- can you share with us what you'd actually do on a typical day? You know, how, do you, how do you get out there and do your work, and how do you minimize risk while you're doing it? Sandy, are you sure you haven't been there? Because I think you <laughs> described it very well. But there's nothing like hearing it from the guy who actually did it. (laughs) All right. Well, this is the same thing we do every year. And so forgive me if I make it sound a little mundane. Most of these blue ice areas where the meteorites are concentrated are nestled up against the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. So the scenery is gorgeous mountain peaks. In Antarctica, it's kind of turned around. It's the mountain peaks that don't have snow on them, and everything below is snow and ice. We'll camp on the ice sheet itself, which makes a very nice flat surface if you find the right spot. And our campsite consists of Scott tents, which are are pyramidal tents with aluminum poles at each corner, and a bunch of cargo in in cardboard boxes kind of lined up so that they don't drift up with the blowing snow too much. As mentioned before, one of the natural processes that help concentrate these meteorites is the ferocious winds of Antarctica. And often all the way through the summer, you'll have these ferocious catabatic winds rolling down. Catabatic just means gravity-driven, cold, dense air that starts sliding downhill because it's been destabilized. And we're camping right in the way of it. These blue ice areas exist because the ferocious winds are there. So we plan actually to lose about 40% of our work field season to those horrible winds. Not only is it cold, not only is are you being buffeted by it, but of course it mobilizes all the snow, the loose snow that's around and reduces visibility. And you can end up with 
visibilities that are measured in uh, centimeters rather than meters or, or kilometers. So when that happens, we huddle down in those tents. They're, they're rated to about 120, I guess I'm mixing units here, about 120 miles per hour. But about the worst that we usually see is 50 or 60. Boy, I'm really going to mix units here, knots. So it's noisy in the tents. It's scary. Literally after about five or six days of that in the row, there are a lot of people wondering why the heck they're here and whether the meteorites are worth it. So if you're stuck in tents for 40% of your time, how are you cooking? How are you living? What are, are people isolated from each other tent by tent? What's that lifestyle like? Well, there's a thousand things I can say about that. The reason we have used these tents is for mobility. Yeah, it would be really nice to have a nice lodge, right? But the areas we go to are so isolated and it's so difficult to get there, even with the best planes and pilots money can buy. We have to minimize everything we can. And these tents are, are survival equipment. They work. Our camp is usually set up with two people to a tent, and you end up with about uh, kind of uh, 36 square feet to call your own, which isn't that much, about nine by four. And we have to work to make sure people are paired up compatibly. Each tent has its own little propane stove, and we literally couldn't work in this environment without that stove. You do need a source of heat. Polar explorers have been breaking the cardinal rule about stoves in your tent for over 100 years and uh, maybe more. And we're no exception. That's the only way you can survive. So we have to be ultra careful. In fact, that fire in a tent is probably the biggest personal risk we face, the most potentially damaging to life and limb. But we have to do it. So each uh, tent mate pair have a little stove, usually a little cook kit, and we have an abundant supply of water. All you got to do is go outside and chip away some of that delicious blue ice and melt it. But it's amazing how much energy you have to put into a block of ice that's at minus 40 C to turn it into tea or to turn it into uh, powdered milk for your cereal. But that's what we do. But you know, you hunker down and you make sure you're ready for it. And again, probably the most important litmus test is a sense of humor and the ability to sit and do nothing and, and not go stir crazy. Board games have gotten popular over the years. There are a few people that have been in our field party that I will never play Settlers of Catan with ever again. So it sounds like it might be a little bit like uh, working on the space station, except there's not 70 knots of wind, which to me would give new meaning to the term wind chill factor. Let me bundle a couple of questions together, Ralph. I would imagine that there's a lot that can go wrong when you're isolated out there in the middle of nowhere, even though you might have communications. So tell us, you know, what kind of safety and other gear do you carry for those contingencies? And what kind of contingency situations did you actually plan for? And did you ever have to use any of them? No, that's a, that's a great question. And I already mentioned one of our biggest fears, which is, is fire. Having to have a lit stove in the tent to keep you warm is an obviously dangerous thing. And it's, that fire is never more than a few feet away from you. So we demand that people stay very alert on that. You know, it is a cardinal rule of our camps that the stove is never on when there isn't somebody alert and watching it. 
There are other risks as well. Obviously, we travel a lot and, you know, the risk of troublesome landings or troublesome takeoffs with the aircraft and stuff. But we're not in command of those aircraft. There's nothing we can do. We just make sure we follow all the right procedures and we do everything we can to prepare runways for incoming aircraft. Communication is huge. Every day, we start off our day with a meeting outside, everybody dressed up, where we double check everybody's gear and talk to each other about our conditions and remind people to talk to us. You know, if you're cold during the day and your feet don't, you can't feel your feet anymore, you don't tough it out. You, you talk to me, you talk to our mountaineers, you talk to your tent mate, and almost a guarantee if you're having trouble getting through the day, so are other people. And that we protect ourselves through being a community. We generally ask people if they want to go for a walk that the mountaineers have, have pointed out to them the safe directions to walk and that they don't get farther away from campus, from camp, than they could crawl back with a broken ankle. That sounds harsh, but I mean, we, we want to make sure nobody is ignoring the simplest little risks of daily activity. We're not too worried about people getting hit in a crosswalk, but if you've walked two miles from camp and turn your ankle over on the ice or fall and, and hit your head, um, we're going to have to send people out looking for you. We have had incidences in our history, which is a long history, of fires starting in tents, which luckily were mitigated quickly before they became extremely serious, life-threatening things. But people have gotten burnt a few times quite badly. We've had some people have issues dealing with the isolation where they've started to get insomnia and homesickness that verged on fear for loved ones. And we've had people have medication issues, you know, over-medicating themselves, so to speak, not in any malicious way, not trying to get high or anything, but you're at high altitude, you're in the cold, you can get dehydrated. So it goes back to some of the things I said at the beginning, you know, a lot of the dangers are self-applied. So awareness of yourself and willingness to share potential problems and be aware of them ahead of time is really a, a big key to us when we consider risk. There is some inherent risk no matter what we do. So I'm not going to be naive and say that we can do this with perfect safety. But I'm extremely proud that the number of injuries, the number of such incidences is really, really low for us. And nobody's lost their life. Nobody's really come very close. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. So it sounds like, Ralph, you have a similar approach that we use on the space station where you have somebody as a chief medical officer with some emergency response training, and then you would bug out and are there other kind of contingencies that you have to plan for? So extra food in case you can't get out when you need to get out or an extra tent in case something burn, you know, blows away. Clearly you have fire extinguishers, it sounds like. What other kind of contingency situations do you have to plan for? Like Every, Everything you just mentioned and above, all of our leadership personnel have undergone emergency first responder training. And in fact, our, we have two trained field safety specialists, both trained in life on the polar plateau, and their word is law in camp and during daily activities. You know, the science leadership 
says, here's our goals for the day and here's what we want to do. But it is the field safety folks that say, okay, we can do that. Or no, we're not. (laughs) We have not just extra tents, but we have an extra tent for everybody. And when we go out during the workday, there's always a tent with a, a snowmobile with a tent on it, a large emergency kit, a stove, extra fuel, days of food, you know, just in case somebody were to slip and fall and we couldn't move them. Well, what we're going to do then is put a tent over them and put a stove in that tent and, you know, put a sleeping bag over them. And we're ready for a lot of things. The veterans of our program, if you were to look at them bedding down for the night, you'd say, why don't you have pajamas on? (laughs) A lot of us go to bed fully clothed because we know if something happens overnight and that tent blows away, I don't want to be looking around for my booties. I want to be ready to go. Even if it gives me 15 or 20 minutes of survivability, that makes a big difference because then I can find the spare parka that might be on my snowmobile and the gloves and the and the sunglasses. So we think through all of these things and we highly, highly promote it for our newbies. Any profession, particularly one that deals with risk, is about both success and failure. And I know, can you give us a, a sense for what it feels like after everything you've just described, maybe sitting a few days in the because you can't get out of your tent, going out there and driving around forever looking for things. When you finally come across one of those precious fields of what you're looking for, meteorites, and how that feels. And also, can you give us a sense for when it hasn't gone so well? Sure. I have to admit, I can't put into words very well the amazing feeling of, of coming across a meteorite particularly when you didn't really expect one to be there. But it is an amazing thrill. The closest I can get to it is say there's a recognition there that what I'm looking at has never been seen before by a human being. It may be a meteorite that is of a mundane type, something we know very well from other meteorites that have been recovered. But I'm still the first person to see it. And when I see somebody else find one and see their excitement, you know, it bleeds over realizing they've just had that amazing experience as well. Then you start thinking about what it took for that rock to get there, you know, somewhere literally hundreds of millions of miles away in the asteroid belt, a couple of chunks of rubble in our solar system bump into each other and they form a cloud of debris that spreads throughout the solar system, some of it spiraling in toward the sun, some of it getting thrown out into interstellar space. And there's our planet Earth tunneling through it, and some of it sticks to the Earth, kind of like bugs on the windshield. Some of that small amount of stuff sticking to the Earth happens to hit the part of the windshield that we call Antarctica, and get carried along by the ice. And an even smaller proportion of it ends up in these little cul-de-sacs. Then an even smaller proportion of it ends up building up as a lag deposit on a, on a little field a few kilometers across, right nestled up against the mountains in Antarctica. And then a human being who obviously failed the intelligence test to stay inside out of the cold stumbles across it and puts eyeballs on it and realizes here's here's a piece of rock that came from Mars or here's a piece of rock that represents unaltered material since the beginnings of our solar system frankly if science for you is understanding where things came from stumbling across a meteorite out on the ice in Antarctica 
is the ultimate version of that. I've stumbled across a little piece of the bricks and mortars of the universe. That's not, it sounds like you're definitely in the right business with that passion that you're displaying for it. You know, I want to just delve a little bit more into something you tangentially discussed earlier, which is, you know, you get some veterans out there, you get some rookies out there. Can you just talk a little bit about the spectrum of behaviors that you've seen on how different people have managed the the risk and the stress and the pressure of being out there, you know, both in a good way and a bad way over the decades you've been doing this? Sure. And again, I think the, the biggest difficulties we've had have been ones that were about the isolation, about emotional support. And that's probably why I've harped on that so much in this conversation. I think some of those are the most risky. It's hard to be situationally aware when the situation you're concerned about is the one in your head or the one that's at home. We want people to feel secure enough to live in the Antarctic environment directly. We're running uh, to the end here, so I'd like to finish up with just maybe one question. Do you Did you develop any rituals or habits, you know, either going into the field or coming out of the field that sort of, you know, opened and closed that, that adventure for you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. Somewhere earlier in our conversation, I wanted to mention that when you take eight people, many of whom have PhDs or at the very least are highly intellectually engaged, you become an isolated community. So yes, it is fun to watch as a group in particular, you develop your own culture. And one thing that we do do a part of the Antarctic meteorite culture, the ANSMET culture, is that there's a very big science meeting, one of the biggest for planetary sciences every spring in Houston at this meeting. We do something called the slideshow where we share the pictures we took and we share the stories for an audience. There'll often be a hundred or more people completely unrelated to our program from planetary science who sit and listen in as we reminisce about what we just went through and we tell funny stories and show pictures of what happened. We're happy to try and bring people into it as much as we can. So thanks to you two for uh, inviting me to spin a few tales. Well, thank you very much, Ralph, for, for being our guest. We really appreciate it. And, and it certainly sounds like a wonderful experience, very similar in some ways to my time on the space station, but definitely in a, a really beautiful environment. So thank you again for joining us. Thanks to both of our Risky Science guests, Dr. Fraser Goff and Dr. Ralph Harvey for sharing a glimpse of the crazy risks scientists often have to take in order to broaden our understanding of the world. I'm Sandy Winnefeld. And I'm Sandra Magnus. Thanks for listening to our first season of The Adrenaline Zone. We'll be back after a short break with a new season, highlighting a whole new cast of characters who are risk takers. We've already got some great guests lined up, and you'll be hearing from us soon. If you like our show, be sure to follow us and write a review wherever you get your podcasts. 